0: was Professor of Practice at the University of Pennsylvania Stuart Weitzman School of Design from 2002 to 2020. His teaching and research focus on land use, urban development and infrastructure planning for megaregions and metropolitan areas. In 2004, he identified the emergence of 11 megaregions across the United States and since then has led seminars and studios on planning for emerging megaregions in the US, Spain the UK, China, Singapore, and Morocco. Ed Blakely is a former Washington insider, an internationally recognized leader in urban development and planning, advisor, and author.
1: Bob Yaro, we've known one another for about 20 years, maybe longer?
2: Uh, at least. And Late 90s, mid-90s, yeah, yeah, 25 years. Yeah, yeah. We both yeah. lived out in rural
1: places, right? Rural. We did. Rural
2: economic development. Yes, I. I uh, when I was teaching at UMass in the in the uh, in the eighties, I started a research center called the Center for Rural Massachusetts. That was that pioneered and uh, we we created the first smart growth campaign and came up with the came up with the term smart growth and popularized it and uh, did rural economic development across New England. I think that's how we met uh, first time. I think so. I was, you know, we were. I, I was uh, leading a set of uh, of regional planning initiatives in New England uh, that that uh, I called them bottom up regionalism because rather than being imposed by the state or federal governments, they were they came out of uh, citizen led initiatives in places like Cape Cod and uh, a number of places. Across Massachusetts and New England, and that really became the, the the precedent for the work I did at RPA on the Long Island Pine Barrens and the New York City Watershed Agreement and the Jersey Highlands and places like that, and creating these large protected landscapes.
1: And once you got into the city, you stayed.
2: Well, I was there for uh, you know for twenty five years, and uh, my deal with Susie when we moved there was it the day that I wasn't commuting into the city every day we were going to get the heck out and uh so we now live 90 miles east of Manhattan on the Connecticut coast which is a lovely you know small town rural setting beautiful place tell me about your last
1: incarnation not pin uh but uh, at RPA what is it what did you do there
2: well so regional plan you know is this uh a wonderful, time-honored organization. It's now it, it'll be celebrating its centennial next year. Um, it was established in the in the 1920s to create a regional plan, a strategic plan, I guess we'd call it now, for for the the metropolitan region around New York. And you know these recurring issues that that RPA has now done four plans. I led the. Third one wrote, wrote, co-authored the third one and then initiated the fourth regional plan. It happened every generation or so. Um, you know, when, when a new set of issues or sometimes an old set of issues kind of rear their ugly heads. You know, in the 1920s, the issues were congestion and uh, uh, public health, although in those days it was, it was infectious disease. Uh, you know, well, it's the same issue we have today uh, environmental quality, preserving water supplies, and so forth, providing public open space, uh, and you know the, the issue at the, the day, and it's true today also is that is that RPA set out to essentially make room in the core of the region in Manhattan and elsewhere in the city for the activities that could only occur there by relocating uh, the the. Uh, in the 1920s, the shipping and warehousing was all on the west side of Manhattan on the Hudson Riverfront, all of that had to be moved to New Jersey and Staten Island and that was a 50 year campaign to do those things. But the plan, the first regional plan laid out the vision, and and I would say something like 80% of the big ideas in the plan got implemented. That- um, you know things like things like Rockefeller Center, for example, and the Civic Center downtown and, and this. Transformation of the whole West Side of Manhattan from warehousing and and whorehouses and so forth to uh, you know what we now know is as, uh, as Soho and and uh, Tribeca and and Yards and Chelsea these you know the kind of you know happening places in the city um, and anyway we you know so I came to RPA after teaching at UMass for for a number of years and. 1989 stayed for 25 years to to uh, uh, see these plans happen and to deal with issues like the one that you and I worked on, which was rebuilding the World Trade Center in lower Manhattan after the 9-11 terrorist attacks Uh, and a bunch of other things that that, you know, were kind of interruptions to the the kind of of
1: government agencies.
2: It's a civic group. Uh, It's it's funded by its members and by uh philanthropies and by research contracts and that sort of thing it remains independent it's it not beholden to any particular industry or any politician and that sort of thing and that seems to work for new york it provides the you know politicians kind of come and go mayors and governors come and go you know but but a civic group has the staying power to to see these issues through and sometimes it takes a generation or longer to, to address a big problem like the ones we've been talking about so uh, you have a board of about 80 people. Yeah, not quite that large, but yes, a very large and, and, and increasingly diverse board, increasingly representative of the diversity of the region. It's a pretty, pretty diverse place, ethnically, geographically, e- economically and so forth. Um, and, you know, the, the board, you know, gives it credibility, the quality of the staff and the research that it does gives, gives it credibility. And it's persistence and its ability to, to reach out to uh, um, the political elites and so forth, uh, enable it to get things to happen. Um, you know, and comparing notes with my counterparts at public agencies in places like London and Paris and other places around the world, Sydney, and other places that have public bodies that do these things. You know, I think RPA has been as effective as any of them in addressing the big issues facing the metropolis. So uh, there I found it, you know, it was really interesting. I did it for 25 years and I said to myself, as the, uh, you know, we, we, we did things like advocate for the MTA's five-year capital programs. And I found myself dealing with my fifth, you know, five-year capital program. And I just said, this is getting kind of old and maybe I need to pass the baton to the kids and do something new. And that's what I have been doing. Uh, since then well I'm doing a, a bunch of things uh, but the, the, I, I chair a museum in Rhode Island uh, a maritime museum because that's one of my lifelong interests and but the thing I'm putting most time into is, is a project called North Atlantic Rail which I initiated about four or five years ago it's a proposal for a uh, uh, a, a new passenger rail network serving the seven state, uh, North Atlantic region, which is, which is New York and New England with a, with a high-speed rail spine between New York and Boston. In a, in a, well, it's, a lot of it's new, there's some new alignment. A lot of it's just reusing existing freight lines and power rights away, uh, connecting the dots between those things, mostly publicly owned. You know, 80% of it is existing right away, but repurposed right away. Uh, uh, we go East on Long Island to uh, Ronkonkoma, which is about 50 miles east of New York City, east of Manhattan. And then in a, a 16 mile long tunnel under the Sound, under Long Island Sound uh, to Connecticut. And then um, and mostly existing right away between New Haven and Hartford and then a new right away to Providence. It, it is, it, I, we right Right. Tunnel is new, every, you know, yeah. You know, we set, we started, this thing was inspired by, um, uh, you know, I spent, at RPA, I started a, a project uh, uh, called America 2050 that looked at the long-term planning issues and infrastructure issues facing the environmental issues facing the country. And, in, and then I held a series of, of studios, graduate planning studios at Penn on some of the big issues that were emerging. And in the first of these, you know, we discovered, we looked at long range development patterns and what we found was that there were uh well now now we've 13 mega regions we've called them we came up with a term to describe these places networks of metropolitan areas and freestanding cities that had connected economies infrastructure natural resource systems traditions and so forth histories Uh, and we learned that that uh these places are all all uh you know a, a thousand or more kilometers across, they're too big to be navigated by automobile and too small to be efficiently accessed by air. And in any event, the highways and the, and the airports and the, and the uh, uh, airspace are all used up anyway. So the mode of choice around the, around the world, you know, beginning with, with the Shinkansen in Japan and now 27 countries either have or are building high-speed rail networks. Uh, the, the network, the, the mode of choice is high speed rail. And, uh, uh, you know, so, you know, we started, we, in 2000, beginning of 2005 or so at RPA America 2050, we laid out, we mapped the, we mapped the mega regions. We then laid out proposed high-speed rail network. We uh, convinced the Obama administration to uh, Include uh, to, uh, what the, the Bush administration to adopt legislation authorizing the creation of a high-speed rail network for the country, and then the Obama administration we convinced them to put total of about ten billion dollars into into a down payment on high-speed rail projects across the country. So I've been at this for quite a while. So, and so and uh, what's happened to those that ten billion dollars? Is there any high-speed well, going on uh, now? Uh, well, no. It turned out it was a. Project the the program was uh, let me just say not well conceived uh, you know they ended up spreading trying to spread it across the country like peanut butter and that doesn't really work you know they and uh, so a number of the states that originally applied for the grants in Florida Wisconsin Ohio for example had Republican governors and uh, you know for political reasons as much as anything else they Ended up turning back the money, just basically to poke Barack Obama in the eye. This was one of his favorite programs, and so they you know, saw this as a way of getting back at him. Uh, California took several billion, but you know that's a, that's a close to a hundred billion dollar program, so several billion is a drop in the ocean. Uh, so it wasn't you know successful the way that it could have been and should have been. And then the Republicans, when they took over the Congress in 2010. You know, decided to to try to re, try to recapture a lot of that funding. Not a good not a good experience. Um, <clears throat> you know, we we proposed in 2000, 2009 Amtrak came forward with a fifty billion dollar proposal to uh, do state of good repair improvements in the Northeast Corridor between Washington and Boston, and w- which they said would would produce fifteen minutes in travel time savings between New York and D.C. and the, Another 15 minutes between New York and Boston. Oh, you know, it's a, it's so who cares? Makes no difference. Struck me that that wasn't much of a value proposition. So I convened a, a studio at Penn with help from the big engineering firms, Ecom and and Parsons Sprinkerhoff. Huh? and uh, we, uh, you know, we came up with our own proposal for a world class, you know, 200 plus mile per hour high speed rail connection, the length of the with the length of that corridor from D.C. to Boston, which would produce one, a 90-minute one, travel time between D.C. and New York, and then a 100-minute travel time between New York and Boston. Uh, I tried to get, you know, to put together advocacy coalitions around that project, and we just couldn't. What we learned is that even though, you know, it's, the Northeast had been defined as a single mega region. In fact, it kind of functions as two mega regions. It turns out the folks in DC and Philly really don't care that much about what happens in New Haven and Hartford and vice versa. And so after years of trying to put together you know, an effective alliance of, of business and civic groups and public officials in the, in the corridor, we uh, you know, began to focus on the, just the New York to, to Boston piece. I should add that when we came up with the original high-speed rail, a proposal in 2010, you know, through an unusual set of circumstances, uh, Ed Rendell, the governor of Pennsylvania heard about the project and uh, called me up and asked if we could present this to him and we did. And in the, about 10 minutes into the presentation, he yells out to his assistant, you know, the governor's office saying, get Joey on the phone. I had no idea who Joey was and, and uh, Joe Biden gets on the phone, the vice president of the United States. And we described the project to him and, Biden says, "When are you presenting this to me?" And the next thing I know, we've got a bunch of graduate students and faculty sitting in the Roosevelt Room in the West Wing of the White House, presenting this thing with a assembled, you know, high-level transportation officials and members of Congress and so forth. And about ten minutes of the presentation, Biden, you know, uh, kind of cuts the students off, pounds on the table, says, "God damn it! I've been waiting this for thirty years. Let's do it." And he directs the Federal Railroad Administration and Amtrak. And, the bureaucracy to get going on this thing, and it's a long story. And uh, you know, and they they kind of bungled a tier one, you know, preliminary EIS on the project. And uh, I, I don't want to go into all the great details, but you know, the vice president has a now president has a longstanding interest in high speed rail. He, you know, he took trains famously from Wilmington to Boston for thirty years while he was in the Senate. Uh, at any rate, so the, Washington. to Washington, yep that's right that's right at any rate um i've been at this for i've been at this for a while we've refined the proposal for the for the the uh, north end of the of the northeast corridor between new york city and and boston uh we've identified alignments that work and a service plan that works and a budget that works it's about 105 billion dollar proposals for the high speed line and a set of of uh, high-performance uh, uh, intercity lines that connect to the high-speed line, and uh, and and that connect all of the mid-sized cities across the seven-state region into this rail network. Well, that's just a and drop. then the final—that's
1: okay. a drop in the bucket. In the infrastructure program that Biden blows, right?
2: Yeah, Small yeah. Round. And then the, the the final piece is so there are three tiers: the high-speed spine, uh, a network of high-performance uh, intercity routes, and then a set of re- electrified regional rail routes around New York City and, and Boston. Goal is to create uh, an integrated you know, 21st century passenger rail system that, uh, that serves the entire region that electrifies the whole program and then there's offshore wind and other renewables come online. It becomes a zero carbon mobility system for the region. It takes hundreds of millions of pounds of carbon out of the, out of the atmosphere every year it, it produces. We're estimating. Our steer group is finishing up a business case study for us. This is the London-based firm that does does this kind of analysis. They've estimated that it will produce five hundred and forty billion dollars worth of economic benefits over the life of the project. So even though it's a, you know it's a lot of money, one hundred and five billion dollars, you, know, you know it's basically almost it's a five to one payback, which suggests that this might be worth doing. Um, we now have a you know, I'm now leading a. Uh, we have a, a new not-for-profit uh, organization called the North Atlantic Rail Alliance that I lead, a president of that group, and then a, and then a lobbying subsidiary that is not tax exempt, uh, called North Atlantic Rail Advocates, that is, and has hired a bunch of lobbyists and PR professionals and others to help us advance this in the Congress and with the White House. So we're working on it. We've been at it. What What's the standard? Well, a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, we got, we got in the U.S. system. You need to get, uh, you want something to get funded. You have you, first, you got to have it authorized by the authorizing committees in the Congress. And last week, before last, we got authorizing language included in the House version of of the uh, the Surface Transportation Act. Uh, we're now working to get a parallel language included in the Senate. And, uh, and then the next trick will be to you know, to have that, have that be carried in a conference committee. And, and then we think it's gonna be incorporated and, fun, and then funded in the appropriation process through, uh, uh, through a, a, a big infrastructure package that's gonna be advanced uh, by the Democrats in what they call a reconciliation process where they need 51 votes, not 60 votes uh, in the Senate. So that we expect to happen could be as soon as August might be in the fall, but we think it's, you know, it's increasingly likely to happen. And we will, we will create, we'll create a new um, entity called the North Atlantic uh, Rail Corporation that would be uh, established to deliver the project, you know, uh, permitting procurement, you know, design, all of that environmental reviews, all that stuff and and with the idea that, that that group can expedite delivery of this thing. A lot of this is modeled after the British experience with, with their big uh, multi-billion dollar multi-year infrastructure projects like Crossrail and HS2. Uh, and uh, and I should say that when we started this thing, it was, it was uh, really predicated on having an economic development strategy for these left behind, these 30 or more left behind cities across across the region that have been in what apparently is terminal decline since the loss of manufacturing 40 or 50 years ago and uh by connecting these places to each other and to new york and boston you know as a foundation for a broader uh revitalization strategy for these places we think we can turn that around
1: now uh let's go back to the infrastructure bill is that joint bill still alive it was going to be
2: yeah yes and 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 uh, the bipartisan thing is alive, and uh, you know one of the i I don't think we're going to include funding for this in that bill we may include authorizing language in that bill for this uh, for for this project um, but we so we expect the sequence to be that there will be a the 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 bipartisan bill probably happens some point in the next month or so uh and, and then it will be succeeded by a, by a, an, a much larger uh, democratic advanced uh, bill that will deal with both infrastructure and a broad range of human services and healthcare and other issues. So um... answer, the answer, Ed, is that nobody really knows exactly how this is all going to happen. Not just I, I was feeling left out and then I spoke to people in the Congress and they tell me that we don't know what's going to happen. Nancy, right. Nancy Pelosi famously told us that, that she'll t- tell us how it's going to happen after it happens.
1: Uh, well, we both know Nancy. Um, now with respect to all of this, what's the timeline if you get started next year? Is it a 30 year project or a 10 year project or what?
2: Well, we've given ourselves 20 years, the pieces of it. Uh, most of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, high performance lines and the regional rail lines are within existing, uh, rail rights of way. Many of them have at least preliminary design and engineering and permitting in place. And so those can get going right away. We think within a year or 18 months, we can have a construction start on those. The, uh, the high speed, high speed truck line is going to take longer to do final design and, and permitting and procurement and so forth. But uh, you know, the goal is to have that in the ground, say, within five years or so, With components of it in the ground. Things like the Long Island Sound Tunnel are going to take longer. Uh, but the idea is to have the whole thing done within a 20-year period. All right. And hopefully sooner.
1: Are you fast-trained or high-speed? There's a big difference.
2: Well, we're, we're, doing, we're doing all the above. So high-speed is, you know, the spine is 200-plus 200, 200 miles per hour service uh, to get that 100-minute travel time between New York and Boston. Uh, the uh, high performance lines are more you know 110 mile per hour services that are you know that where we where we may not have the market to support the kind of aggressive tunneling and and uh, all, all the other things that you do to straighten out rights away for for true high speed right. so so it's a combination of both
1: uh, but the way the Japanese have funded to continue this is they own the hotels along the routes, they own the taxis,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: What are you doing in that regard? Because this thing has to be maintained; except not maintained by passenger fares.
2: Well, uh, we, we've we've looked at that. There are opportunities in New York and Boston and a few other places to do value capture, value creation, of value capture. Uh, we think that's likely to work uh, in these smaller cities. There's less value to capture. And, and in fact, they, they most of them urgently need whatever tax revenues are being generated, whatever values are being created, they need to capture it locally to, to support local services and schools, police and stuff like that. So we think a portion of it will, will, will do that. But the other thing that Japanese have done and many of the other high-speed rail systems is they, they run uh, three levels of service on their trains. They run a first class, business class, and then coach. You know, it's just like the airlines. they And the people up in the front, two, three cars, are the expense account crowd and the wealthy folks who don't want to rub elbows with the ordinary people in the back. They pay through the nose to, to have wider seats and slightly more comfortable, you know, uh, service. Ironically, the, uh, the, 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 the eight or nine cars in the back of the train with a coach Passengers, those are the people that uh, you know are ordinary people, and uh, they may have they may have a subsidized monthly pass from their employer because it's cheaper to pay pay for that for the employer than it is to pay them to live in Tokyo. And uh, but 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 they, you know, it's, it's like the airline model. They they uh, you know they get a get a big cross subsidy from the front of the train to the back of the train which means that you have a much smaller nut to crack in terms of paying, covering operating expenses. I, uh, I, around the world, a lot of these...
1: Go ahead. I, I've been in uh, these high-speed trains around the world. I've been China, Japan, Europe, France, especially. Uh, yeah. And uh, I find the big difference is not the front end of the train. It's the business class. I think the business class, like the business class on the airplane, uh, not the first class. I very seldom build the first class car. Yeah. The next class, the business class is pretty all right, and it's hard to get yeah. in. Right. Uh, the coach class is taken by the students.
2: Right. So, well, if you go to you go to Japan, you'll see the the vast majority of the people on those trains in coach. Are the are the salarymen? They're the they're the the you know they're the daily you know employees who uh, have to get from you know from some some place in the Tokaido region to Tokyo or Osaka or Nagoya most days or every day, and they they commute long distances because housing prices are lower in these outlying places. You, you know, the cost of housing and, and the congestion uh, on the transportation system in the big cities, of course, is just over overwhelming. So people choose to do it for a variety of reasons, but but, but most, most most of all, because it's cost-effective and convenient. You know, the Chinese are running, at, what is it, like half a billion passengers a year on their high-speed rail network. And most of those are working steps, you know, that are, and, and uh, because of the high volumes and so forth, uh, you know, the, the subsidies are relatively small. The other thing is you have to look at the long-term Payback, you know, as I go back to our estimate of of you know more than half a trillion dollars in new economic activity. Okay, just assuming that let's say twenty percent of that is is um, uh, is is tax revenues. You know, you you just paid for your capital costs with just with just those tax revenues alone, but you're creating enormous value across a seven state region. Uh, enormous you know wealth that could then support uh, this infrastructure. So anyway, that's what we're in you know, our, 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 notion is, and the other thing we're doing, we're proposing the federal government pick up the tab on the whole thing on the capital side so that we don't have to load up the fare box, you know, with, with, uh, debt service, you know, you may remember from your New York days that, that something like 20 to 25% of the, of the, uh, of the fares was covering debt service on the MTA. So it adds up tremendously. And, uh, and so we're, we're proposing that that not happen with this system.
1: All right. So we get this system built. Uh, the end game here is post COVID, I think, to make
2: cities, small cities, function like big cities. Well, so the idea here, and this really, we think, you know, this this was conceived, this proposal was conceived before the COVID pandemic, but but we think that the the what the emerging post-COVID, uh, you know, hybrid work pattern, uh, you know, is going to be enabled by this system, that that people uh, who don't need to be in New York or, or or Boston every day, you know, can choose to live farther out. Can you know if in fa- and particularly if if in fact you have this convenient, well-priced system that allows people to you know commute within, you know, anywhere in this seven-state region within an hour or so of New York or Boston. Uh, the trains will run in both directions. We think that that increasingly employers are gonna be pushing operating units out to smaller places that entrepreneurs will be starting businesses and growing businesses in these smaller places. And that this is gonna fundamentally change the, the economic geography of the region. So that, uh, and, and we have had, we know that we've had an over concentration of Jobs and population and activities um, in in the heart of the New York and Boston regions, and it really has undercut the success of these places. That, you know, gridlocked highways, uh, housing prices, and commercial rents that are off the charts, and so forth. It has it has slowed and in some cases reversed the growth of these places. Now, New York and Boston have both had an outmigration of residents and jobs over the last several years prior to COVID. That's probably stabilizing now, but what we see is a, a new geography in which only the people actually and the businesses and activities that have to be in the core of the region are gonna be there. And that the people who don't need to be sitting in a cubicle, you know, in an office in Manhattan, you know, every day are gonna find better, better places to live, better places to work. And this gets back to the hundred-year-old story that I told at the beginning of this interview about moving the activities out of the core of the region that don't need to be there to make room for the things that do need to be there, people and jobs and industries that need to be in the, in the core. Well, so we end up with a much stronger, what's core.
1: that? Will it hurt the big cores like New York City. Big
2: no, big I don't think so. And uh, I, I think it helps them because, because uh, you know, it just doesn't add an awful lot of value to have millions of people sitting in cubicles, you know, on, on computer screens. You know, every day uh, they're not being particularly productive, and they're not doesn't justify the high rents that they have to pay to live there, and the, their employers need to, you know, house them there. Uh, so I and, and by moving them out, it makes room for the people and jobs and industries that really do need to be in the core—the creative industries, the communications industries, media, and so forth. They really do need to be in the core of the region. Finance and so forth. Tor could get cleaner
1: by having fewer people congesting it. And the small places become more lively. Yes. Everybody Everybody wins. wins, Win-win. Yep. So Robert Euro, another challenge, another day. That's just you.
2: (laughs) You're very kind
1: Ed. But uh, when I, I I get my second shot today, and when I can come, I'll actually go on your boat.
2: Okay. Well, you'll, yeah, boat's in Maine at the moment, which is a good place to be. You know, it's it's just the, uh, when we had that big heat wave, you know, last week in the Northeast, it was 95 degrees in New York and Boston. It was 75 degrees where the boat is in Maine. You know, perfect. Uh, so it's a nice place to be. You'd enjoy it.
0: You can find more from Pacific Conversations at the website edtalks.com.au or subscribe wherever you find the podcast to make sure you don't miss out. Pacific Conversations is a joint effort between Ed Blakely and myself, Sean Britton, plus Tina Quinn from 2SER. For weekly US news and current affairs, check out Ed and I's other podcast, US of Ed, wherever you find good podcasts as well as on Facebook and Twitter. And that website again is edtalks.com.au